Quantas vezes o coração Não consegue compreender O que a mente não faz questão Nem tem forças pra obedecer Quantos sonhos já destruí E deixei escapar das mãos Se o futuro assim permitir Não pretendo viver em vão Hello everyone, welcome to Reservations. We are your hosts, I'm Rain Whalen. Welcome to the Life Podcast. The Life with Jeremy. Yeah. Because yeah. You're, you're, you're experiencing life right now? No, it's a play on our uh, movie dinner. Oh. Uh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's, like I, it's like I just saw you yesterday. You did. I know. Yeah. I, I know I did. Yeah, so uh, welcome back, everyone. Um, just, you know, I don't... My brain's not really working right now hmm. because... What a perfect time to record. Ah. Okay. I'll be all right. Sure. My, I, I've got the movie locked in a, in, a, in a vault in my brain. I'm glad. That's labeled Wes Anderson. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone uh, missed last week, uh, we're just going to go ahead and jump into it because I have a feeling Jeremy wants to get it over with. First off, if you missed last week, shame on you. Yeah. Last week was a good episode. Um, But uh, this week we are discussing one of my favorite directors, uh, one, two, three, fourth movie. Yeah, this was his fourth movie. Wait, there's Bottle Rocket, Rushmore. See if we can get it. See if we can get it. Royal Tenet Palms? Oh, yes. And then this one? Exactly in that order. Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, Royal Tenet Palms. Right on. Which is the movie you're talking about? The Life Aquatic uh, with Steve Zizou. So, um, if many, uh, a lot of listeners out there should will probably know that I have a love for Wes Anderson. Um, I think all his movies are is great. Um, and... This movie really defined, in my opinion, the signature style he has now. Because I've I haven't seen Bottle Rocket yet, even though I own it on Criterion Collection at the Flex Nuts. Uh, <laughs> um, I've started Rushmore, I haven't finished it, and I've seen the Royal Tenenbaums, and all three are very. Well, at least Rushmore and Royal Lieutenant Bombs are very early Wes Anderson, where he's trying to figure out his style of filmmaking mm-hmm. and framing and pacing. Because in this one, we see tropes in future movies, such as, you know, um, the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, um, <clears throat> Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, the Darjeeling Unlimited, Isle of Dogs, where everything's framed a certain way, the the comedy is a certain way. Um, because Wes Anderson, I don't know if you picked up on it, he does this thing where he melds comedy and drama really well together, in my opinion. Um, but uh, so so I asked you to save your opinions yeah. until we started recording. Mm-hmm. So. What did you think of the movie? It's a complicated question. Because I, when I was watching it, I, I don't know, man. So I, I think as a whole, I didn't really enjoy it. 
Okay. okay. Uh, I think that it's just not for me. I did enjoy parts of, like what you were saying, the framing, the sort of uh, directorial trademarks, right? Mm. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of the dry comedy. That's my thing. I really like that. Um, I know Bill Murray made me laugh a few times. Well, I also re- didn't realize until uh, earlier today that this was co-written with uh, Noah Bachman. Yes. Who is... Bombach, but you're Bar- really no. close. Uh, well, but, you know, he's big on dry the, comedy. And, and, and the, in the hipster movie scene, right? Along with Wes. Um, oh. The only one, the only movie I've seen of Noah Bombach's is A Marriage Story, which uh, I love. You should watch the Meyerowitz stories. That one's really good. Uh, maybe. Anyway. Um, We're not talking about that one. Yes, because I was reading that his usual um, writing partner was Owen Wilson. Yes, then, yeah, they they did the, his first three films yeah. together. The Owen Wilson and him co-wrote Bottle Rocket, Rushmore, and mm-hmm. um, Royal Tenenbaums, which Owen is in two of those. Yeah, he's one of the main characters of Bottle Rocket, and more of a sub character in. Um, uh, Royal Tenenbaums, um, and then I'm, I'm I have it up right now. And then um, it seems like West starts co-writing with Noah Moore and Jason Schwartzman, who I also love, mm-hmm. because then we know because then Jason starts to pop back up again in his movies, mm-hmm. like with Fantastic Mr. Fox, uh, Moonrise Kingdom, um, Isle of Dogs, Grand Budapest Hotel. But anyway. Yeah, so I don't know. So, okay, so I watched the movie today. Okay. And again, there were things I really liked. I liked the um, the let me show you, let me tell you about my ship oh, uh, yeah. sequence, which I really liked because I feel like that's something that he will duplicate later in his career. And he has, right? Yeah. In certain ways. In certain ways. So, so the whole, you know, where it's a set but you know it's, the ship is cut down the middle and we can see every compartment right. uh, he does that a lot yeah uh, fantastic Mr. Fox he doesn't do it as much in Grand Budapest mm-hmm. um, he does do a similar thing where he uses it's obviously a model of yeah the, the hotel as establishing shots right mm-hmm. or seeing the outside of it and the audience knows that it's, it's he's not trying to trick you, right? It's obviously a model, right? Yeah. Just like in this one, obviously, it's a set, a set, right? Yeah. It's all. I mean, if you would have gotten any more wink, wink, I mean, Wes Anderson would have still been in the shot and be like, oh shit, you know, <laughs> sorry, uh, to get out of the way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I liked, I liked that sequence. I liked the let me show you my ship. I'm a gigantic Willem Dafoe fan. And I was so, going to say, I'm sure you'd like that. Yes, I did like Willem Dafoe. I did like he was in it. Um, I, I'm not a huge fan of Angelica Houston. So and nothing against Angelica Houston. Well, well, and you gotta and. This is right after Royal Tenenbaums, and mm-hmm. she really her character is the maternal mother <clears throat> in Royal Tenenbaums, mm-hmm. and so this was a flip, okay, for her. So she's nicer in Royal Tenenbaums. Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Yeah, the only this person one's she's very cold and distant. And- the only person she's shitty to in Royal Tenenbaums is Royal, mm-hmm. uh, which is that's the character's name, uh, played by um, Gene Hackman. Oh, okay, who. I think you'll like this. I like Jane Hackman. Did not 
like working on that movie at all. Uh, apparently, he's been very vocal about how he apparently him and Wes butted heads cons- constantly. Is it? I mean, well, that was before the whole geometric sort of way he he films, right? Because you know, this I, I I would assume yeah that this is sort of the beginning of everything is symmetrical, perfectly mm-hmm. centered, right? Yeah, Royal Tenenbaums doesn't have. A lot of examples and of this that. one doesn't do it all the time, but in a lot of scenes, people are perfectly in the center or something is in the dead center of mm. the shot, right? Yeah, but yeah, uh, yeah, apparently Gene just, yeah, Gene Hackman didn't like where you but anyway. Um, so, but what did you think about this huge? Cast that he assembled, Bill Murray. Yeah, I love Bill Murray. Always, always have, always will. Owen love Wilson, uh, Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Um, can't think of his name. His it, my best friend Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah, Jeff Goldblum, uh, who I also love very much. Because there, there's so many people in it. Dude. There is there is a lot of people in this movie. Even uh, I recognize some people that weren't famous yet. Um, or at least not well known yet. We have the the gentleman, one of the interns, uh, oh, yeah. is on Criminal Minds, right? Yeah. Uh, Elliot. Yeah, and uh, I was like, oh hey, I know that, you know. And you know, this was two thousand four. Uh, yeah, I don't think Criminal Minds had started yet. Not yet. Uh, close, but not yet. And uh, I was reading that at the time. He was Wes Anderson's intern in real life. Oh, that's fucking cool. And so <laughs> um, he was an intern for Wes, and so he played an intern in this well, one. And I've heard that Wes... Don't worry, we'll, we'll get to what this movie's about. I've heard that apparently on set with Wes, is it's really loose and fun. That he's not like, we, we need to shock. Which is really interesting because... Well, because he's also from Austin. Oh, is he? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, he graduated I, from UT Dog. When he uh, when he started getting more well known, I would get him and Spike Jones confused, right? I consider them to be I similar, can see that. I can right? see that. And yeah. I, I love Spike Jones. And so that's why yeah, and, I was and, like, Oh, is that the Oh no, that's that's Wes. That's not Spike. Okay. And I mean then, I could see that. I mean they're both really skinny, lanky white guys. And they both have very unique, quirky styles of filmmaking, right? Yeah. And I think I think a lot of people also forget that Spike Jones uh, helped launch Jackass. Yes, yes, he did. Because <laughs> uh, he helped launch um, Jackass when he was working with Big Brother magazine. So yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, and Spike Jones, of course, was a gigantic um, influence, and you know, sort of a hot shot in music videos. Mm. Uh, he would make the dopest music videos, right? Yeah. Um, he did the Lego one with um, the White Stripes, and he did, uh, yeah, he's done a whole bunch of stuff. So and so, like I said, obviously now I can tell the two yeah. apart, but at the time, no, because they would, you know, they would make these little quirky movies, and you know, like I think at the time it was being John Malkovich was out, and that was a Spike Jones, right? Of course, it's really a Charlie Coffin movie, but um, future episode right there. <laughs> But anyway, so, Wes. It seems, my point is, it seems really interesting that he would be so relaxed and and sort of nonchalant on set because everything is so meticulous. Yeah. Right? I think it's because he, he know like, I think he's one of those directors who, he knows what he wants. Mm-hmm. He's going to get it. So what's the point in being a hard ass? 
because like I was watching the behind the scenes of the Fantastic Mr. Fox, mm-hmm. um, and what was really cool is I know we're gonna talk we're gonna talk about the Life Aquatic. Just hang on, just it, I'll make it really brief. Uh, when they were doing pre production for the voices, like uh, with um, George Clooney, they w- they actually went out to a farm and recorded audio and footage of George acting like Mr. Fox. That's interesting. And then just so they had an idea for the animators, like what this might look like. Sort of his... George's nuances. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And then they went into a recording studio and he, he did his lines. Interesting. But, you know, Wes was very like, all right, yeah, yeah, and just... Not not very like all right, George. I need I need you to come harder this time. Like he was just more like oh yeah, maybe maybe try it this way. Yeah, or just one more, one more. You know, super relaxed. But okay, so here's here's what I propose. I propose you do. I was about to say, do you want me to do this? Yes, do the the synopsis. The synopsis. I'm not going to interrupt you. Okay, I will. I will keep it. uh, Keep it tight. Only because I think there's a lot. Right, mm-hmm. and I was paying attention. I watched it today, but I don't know if I could do a, a to B to C to D. Right, so all right, I think ahead. I can do it. Okay, so the movie is The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Um, Steve Zizou is a oceanographer. Um, he has made several movies of him and his team uh, in the ocean exploring. Um, and as we'll learn later, uh, it's all scripted. He, even though he prides himself on uh, uh, being very authentic, it's all scripted. But anyway, um, on one of their latest expeditions, uh, his lifetime uh, companion or uh, colleague, I don't know why I thought companion. I mean, there is a little, I'm going to be honest, there is a little something there between him and Gustav. Or, uh, yeah, no. Gustav? No. No. It's not Gustav. It's, it's... Shit. I honestly don't remember. It's, hang on. I think it's like something like Esteban or something. It's Esteban. Oh, it was Esteban. God. Holy shit. Oh, I watched it today. God, God damn. Uh, anyway, his, so his, uh, longtime colleague Esteban is eaten by a, what he refers to as a jaguar shark, which no one else sees except for Steve, and Steve uh, claims it was real. Esteban was eaten right in front of me. Um, and so they take the footage of this expedition, make it into a movie, and premiere it at an Italian, I guess, oceanographer conference. I guess like a Cannes film festival just for oceanographers, I guess. That is the one thing I have a question about. I actually, um, it would make more sense if it was in France. Yeah, but... It's in Italy. Is it really? Yeah, it's in Italy. All right. They're, they're speaking Italian. Oh, were they? That was <laughs> I obviously wasn't paying attention to that. <laughs> well, the only reason why I, I would just assume it would be in Paris or, you know, somewhere in France is just because of Jacques Cousteau. But anyway, um, because there's a lot of reference to Jacques Cousteau. And, yeah. Um, anyway. Go ahead. Anyway. Sorry. Uh, so, so, uh, so Steve does a Q&A and says that this is just part one of two, that the second part will be him and his crew going to find the Jaguar shark and he's going to get his revenge. I don't know, by maybe blowing it with a stick of dynamite. And I, and I love how he delivers that, like, I don't know, maybe with some dynamite or something. Um, and so they have uh, a bit of an after party on his boat, the uh, Belafonte, 
which I love because it's obviously a reference to Harry Belafonte. Um, and where he meets Ned, Owen Wilson. Oh, I should have mentioned Steve Zizou is played by Bill Murray. Uh, where he meets Ned, and Ned claims to be his long-lost son. Um, and Zizou is kind of... Doesn't know how he feels about it, but you know what? I could use... It's, it's, it's clearly a whole, like, I could use something like this right now. So he decides to take Ned under his wing, and they go back to his island that he owns, because... Apparently, this dude just owns everything. And uh, I forgot to mention that Steve was really popular. Not anymore. Uh, he uh, cheats on his wife, and she knows he does. Um, played by Angela Bassett. Um, and she knows he does. Angelica Houston. Angelica Houston. You were uh, really close. Sorry, I, I, I wasn't going to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, no. I uh, can't believe I said I mean, I love Angela Bassett, but she's not in this movie. Anyway, Angelica Houston. Um... And he keeps losing to his, who he thinks is a rival, uh, Hennessy, Alistair Hennessy, uh, Jeff Goldblum. Um, but anyway, so he goes, he takes Ned back to his island and he gets a call from, I can't think of the actor's name, uh, Dumbledore. <laughs> uh, the actor who played Dumbledore, uh, hang on, I think I should have it. In a second, probably not. The second Dumbledore, we should say. Uh, Michael Gavin mm-hmm. um, is his financier uh, for all his films. And pretty much tells him that if you're going to make this movie, you have to follow strict rules. And there's going to be a stooge from the bank that's going to follow you along, Bill. And... So just hijinks ensue after that. They go and rob Hennessy's sea lab for equipment because they don't have the proper equipment on the Belafonte to track the jaguar shark. Um, oh, and, and during all of this, uh, we're introduced to Kate Blanchett, who is a reporter um, called uh, uh, Jane. Uh, she's pregnant. And Steve just has some weird fascination with her. I don't know. Like, I think that's my only other question is why he's so infatuated with her. It's Kate Blanchett. Well, I mean, yeah, she's great. But her this character's pregnant. It's clearly the homie has no... Uh, People are into that. I know. But at the same time, so is Ned. Ned is also into that. Um, anyway, so hijinks ensue. Uh, they Ned decides to take them into uncharted waters, which they are then boarded by pirates. Um, the pirates uh, are going to kill everyone until they learn that Bill can speak Portuguese. <laughs> and apparently that makes Bill the most valuable person now. Uh, they steal Steve's money because um, he decided in one of his movies to showcase it so they knew he had it. Um, that also has your favorite line when the pirates are pointing guns at the interns Steve puts his hand in front of the barrel of the gun like that's going to do anything is like don't point a gun at him he's an unpaid intern <laughs> and he keeps following the gun like that's going to help so he, no one can see me I'm moving my hand up and down um, well then the pirates break the boat and Jeff Goldblum comes to the rescue uh, Steve makes 
kind of amends with his wife. And they decide, okay, we're going to go on a rescue mission. We're going to get the money back, and we're going to get Bill back. So they track the pirates to an island. Um, find Bill. Find the money. They get off the island, but what they didn't realize, since they didn't know, the pirates didn't know the code to the safe, they uh, used a blowtorch and cut a hole in the back. And that has my favorite line, where Steve sees it, and you can just tell he's just so defeated, and he's like, well, I'm retired. Just because he knows, like, as uh, our buddy Joe Exotic said, I'm never going to be able to financially recover from this. Yeah. Shout out to uh, Joe Exotic. Um, he He's probably not listening to this. Go ahead. I mean, wouldn't it be crazy if he was, though? <laughs> maybe maybe that's all they give him yep. in uh, in prison. <laughs> you can listen to one of these podcasts you've never heard of. Pick one. Goes, oh, they're all so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Steve thinks he's, he's done. And Ned convinces him, like, hey, we're not over yet. Let's go find that jaguar shark. And so they take um, the helicopter that they have on the Belafonte up, because Ned's also a pilot. But because it's been over six months since Klaus, Willem Dafoe's character, has checked it, they crash into the sea, and R.I.P., Ned dies. Um, And something I really love, and I'll finish it after this, is we know something bad's about to happen because Wes flashes red on the screen briefly, but then he flashes red and you're like, oh no, someone died. And it's dead. Um, And so Steve is now inconsolable because he thinks that he has lost a son, which, as Angela Houston says to Jane, Kate Blanchett, that it's impossible for Steve to have kids. He shoots blanks. Um, which I have something on that, but anyway. Um, but then all of a sudden they get a signal because Steve shot the jaguar jock with a home jaguar shark with a homing dart. They get a signal and he's right underneath them. So they take the submarine, quickly go down there, and Steve's ready to kill it. But then as soon as they see it pass over the submarine, Steve decides, no, I just need to let it go. And they let the jaguar shark go. Steve releases the his part two to the. Uh, I apologize, everyone. Releases part two to uh, I guess the same film festival again. And unlike the last time he was there, where he got in a fist fight with someone in the crowd, he wins an award, and no one is expecting it. And then he kind of walks off triumphantly with his marriage with Angelica Houston, I guess, solid now. And uh, everyone ready for another adventure. And that's The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Okay. Um, Okay. So, okay. Things I liked. Okay. Again, I had already mentioned the let me tell you about my boat sequence. I like the dry sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like the the mesh of live action and stop motion yeah. uh, with the sea creatures. I liked that. All mm-hmm. right? I thought that was dope. I thought that it gives a little surrealism to the whole thing, mm-hmm. which I dug. And the last thing is when he... 
Steve, and Kate Blanchett are on the balloon. Oh, yeah. There's a, there's a POV shot where you can see their feet, similar to when they were on the helicopter. And you can just see down at the boat. It's a little nod to Fellini's Eight and a Half, um, in my personal opinion. Okay. I couldn't find anything that said it was, for sure. But it's, that's what it was. Okay. So, uh, which is a surrealist film from the 60s, and it's Italian also. So, um, I mean, that would make sense. But yeah, so... Um, I also thought it was interesting how directly they speak, right? Yeah. They they don't, well, hum, hum. They're just like, I don't like you, you know, or they'll just, <laughs> they'll just say it, right? Mm-hmm. There's, it, it's so direct and there's no sort of sugarcoating anything. It's yeah, very Yurgos Lanthimos. So Yurgos Lanthimos does the same thing with his, if you've ever seen Dogtooth or The Lobster or... Uh, killing of a sacred deer. That's how those characters speak. Also, yeah, that's that, that's how Wes writes in all of his films. There's no hemming and hawing. Mm-hmm. No, mm, mm, uh, I don't know. How Everything I is it? very direct. Yeah. Um, even the actions are very direct. Mm-hmm. There's a scene. Me and Ashley love it in the Grand Budapest Hotel, where Jason Schwartzman's character, who's a concierge, she's who's got a very minor role in the film, sees someone choking. And as the film eventually establishes that concierge are supposed to take care of everything in the hotel, he sees someone choking. And all he does is he he's looking in the direction of that character and he goes, shit. And then you see him pop out of this like hidey hole underneath his desk and he just takes off. Um, it's kind of the same thing with this is the action is very direct as well. Mm-hmm. That there's no waiting around for something to happen. A problem I had, um, which I thought it was sort of like a dream sequence, Mm -hmm. uh, where Steve Zizou gets his Glock that everyone has issued on the boat, which I did think was fine, uh, (laughs) and everyone gets a a gun. No exceptions. (laughs) No exceptions. Is he single-handedly fights off the pirates on the boat. I swore to God, because even the cinematography changes, right? Mm -hmm. It was a very, you know, sort of dark blue sort of filter Mm. And then it went back to, um, you know, light and bright and colorful. And I was like, oh, shit, it's a dream sequence because there's no fucking way. Right. But I think the point is uh, Steve just gets angry. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've seen him. I mean, he's pretty much angry the whole movie. Um, But I think he kind of taps into like a primal rage and because, yeah, yeah. That color pop is is deliberate. You know, unlike my uh, mess up in the short film where everything is really nice. And then when we get that shot of you with the when you're getting the groceries out and it's dull again, Mm -hmm. that was just because I couldn't get the background. Like, right. right. Yeah. But, you know, but that shot was deliberate for him to. Right. right. Well, that's why, you know, that that sort of difference in, in color is why I thought. It was it, a dream sequence. Or something. You know, just a, a little tip off to know that something's different, right? Yeah. Because uh, obviously it was deliberate. Everything this director does seems to be deliberate, mm-hmm. right? And so when it turns out that, you know, oh, he's going back to get everyone untied and everyone is like, oh, so it actually happened. That seems odd. <laughs> 
Um, And so I didn't, I mean, obviously, it's not that I don't buy it, right? It's I don't buy the character doing that, right? It's right. it's not the fact that uh, one person can do it. Yes, they can. But I mean, it's it's just unlikely, right? And yeah. maybe that's maybe that's the point. Maybe it's so unlikely, um, but I don't know. Yeah, especially at this point, you know, Steve had been real a real asshole to everyone, you know? Yeah, I guess so. Um, and, you know, I don't know. It's just uh, a lot of the, the pacing or the tone of the film would change a little bit every now and then. And I don't know. I, just, I guess to me, I didn't really enjoy that very much. Right. Um, for instance, when Ned died, I found myself not giving a shit <laughs> at all. Like, I didn't care at all that he died. And I don't know. I don't, I don't know why. Um, I guess to me, the, the film didn't didn't pay off his death, right? Mm-hmm. We didn't spend enough time with Ned. We didn't get to love Ned enough, I guess, for me anyway, um, to pay off his death, right? Well, and I think that I think that goes into you know the same thing with Steve. Mm-hmm. No, because Steve definitely doesn't really seem to not necessarily care. Well, it's almost like he doesn't really care that Ned is there. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like it's a publicity stunt by saying like, oh yeah, it's my long lost son. Right. You know, especially when, you know, they find the sunken uh, airplane mm-hmm. and he's like, is it okay if I call you dad in this scene? And he's like, why? You know? Right. So I think, I feel like, you know, I never thought about it that way. I, I always hate it when Ned dies because okay. I love, like- I love Owen Wilson. Yeah. Um, but you know, but to your to your credit, you know, I think it's because Wes is trying to make us feel like we're in Steve's position. Mm-hmm. Steve shouldn't care, but Steve ends up caring anyway. I see. You know, maybe, maybe. I, Again, uh, this movie's just not for me. So, let <laughs> me um, think of another thing because I, you know, I I really did like Jeff Goldblum a whole lot. Yeah. Especially the end where he was like, "Is this my Capuchin machine? Where did you guys get this?" He goes, "Dude, we fucking stole it." <laughs> you know? Which I liked. Right. It's again, it's very directed. It's very dry. Right. Um, and I I liked the gun stuff, which is so funny to me that everyone has a gun strapped to their leg. Hey, Anne, do the interns get guns? No, they share a Glock. <laughs> it was okay. See, so there you go. See, <laughs> almost to prove to Steve or to, to, to Ned. Ned. Yeah, everyone has one. See, you know, um, um, which is silly, but I liked it. Would you Would you like to know uh, a real world bit of trivia? Sure. So those shoes that we see, mm-hmm. those custom-made uh, Samoas from Adidas, mm-hmm. um, Adidas actually did do that. Oh. Um, actually, way after the movie came out, they were like, yeah. And it was a limited release, and they did make them exactly like they are in the film. Um, so I should mention, uh, in the film, everyone wears the same uniform. A baby blue uh, shirt, pants, these white Adidas uh, Samoas, if anyone knows what those are, you're probably imagining them. And then a red beanie. Uh, the only way to tell everyone apart is because they all have a different red beanie. Um, Steve's is the more, I guess, iconic. But then, you know, like Ned has the three mm-hmm. lights. Uh, Klaus has the... Uh, the puffball. The puffball. You know, so everyone has a different kind of uh, of uh, beanie, and that's how you can tell who's who. Pretty much, you know. And I, I did like 
I thought it was funny that they would wear it to formal events. Yeah. They would wear the red beanie, you know, mm-hmm. which is <laughs> silly, right? Yeah, the only time Steve doesn't wear one is when he's doing his Q&A. Yeah. Um, uh, now, I, I just remember this. The only other person that lets you know who they are is Klaus because mm-hmm. he always is wearing shorts. Yeah, he doesn't wear pants, right? Even his, his uh, scuba suit is shorts yeah too which I, I was like okay I do like the consistency right well uh, and of course I love that Will Defoe, Defoe. Yeah. That, well and I love that he when we first meet Klaus we're like mm, I don't know how we feel about this guy and then come to find out he's like a, a prissy German guy yeah when he doesn't get he always gets picked for B team yeah <laughs> yeah thanks for making me stay on the B team <laughs> that was a decent German accent yeah um Oh, and I love the whole when when Ned gets him back for slapping him. He's yeah. like, "You've understood up for yourself." Yeah, but I owed you one. But well, well then you, I owe you one. No, now we're even. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, again, a lot of you know little things that were funny. Right now, no. I do want to challenge you on you calling this a serious movie last week. Mm, no, wrong. Okay. This is not a serious movie, not even a little bit. I would say <laughs> it is way more of a comedy than it ends up being a drama, right? I I mean, I think the reason why I think of it as more of a serious movie than a comedy, I mean, I, I do think it is a dramedy, but it's just all the interactions Steve has with people. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, yeah, there's comedic bits within them, but they're never good interactions. Like when he makes Kate Blanchett cry the first time they're, mm-hmm. you know, actually doing his interview. Um, so that's why I refer to it as a serious movie, mm-hmm. especially, of course, then with the death of Ned. Yeah, I didn't give a shit about that. Um, well, and did you know, because I, I watched a video a long time ago about it, um, when they wash up on shore and he's holding him. It's yes, it's supposed it is. to represent Mary but, and Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's but, the famous sculpture, right? Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't my way to shoehorn in a Wes Anderson movie. No, it's okay. I mean, that's fine. I've, I mean, truth be told, uh, I think Royal Tenenbaums is probably a little bit more serious, mm-hmm. especially in the third act. I, I, I'm trying to, you know, again, I'm I'm familiar with his filmography. I've just never seen any of them. This is the first one I've seen. Um, I'm trying to think of if any of them are, in fact full serious. No, they're all comedies. And I don't think so. No. Right? They're all comedies. Okay. Um, Bottle Rocket is probably... Maybe his new one that's coming out with oh, the, uh, the French Dispatch? Yeah. Looks fucking great. Javier Bardem... No, no, it looks the same to me. Uh, <laughs> Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton, so many people to name. Uh, it looks fucking awesome. Uh, I will own all his movies on Criterion. Uh, that That is... That is that's non-negotiable, um, but no. So uh, I really want to talk about the character of Pele. Okay. Um, he. So if anyone hasn't seen this movie, there's a character in the film called Pele. He is the. They get they they say his title at one point in the movie, and I just I can't remember. He is, but he's one of the crew members. And he's played by, I'm going to butcher it, but I'm going to try my best. He is a uh, Portuguese musician. His name is 
Sue George. That's not bad. I, I think I, I'm sure I butchered it. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, and he, the whole movie, we see Pele on a guitar, uh, playing and singing songs, and a lot of the songs he sings sounds a lot like David Bowie, and that's because David Bowie is a running theme throughout the whole. Well, I wouldn't say theme, but it. His music runs throughout the entire movie. Yeah. Whether it's his actual songs or I'm just going to refer to him as Pele. I don't want to butcher his name mm-hmm. again if he's listening. Uh, I mean, because I think we do have a couple of listeners in Brazil. Wow. Um, uh, he sings all the songs in Portuguese, mm-hmm. which is so cool. It, it, I think it brings like a whole nother level to David Bowie's music. It is really interesting because, um, you know, and it's hard. It's harder than it looks to um, transfer, to translate a film or a, a song from one language to another uh, because obviously it's rhyme based, right? And those same words don't rhyme in different languages, right? Mm. Um, and so it's very difficult. So hats off that he did it at all, right? And he did it all himself. He did the. The composing of the the acoustic mm-hmm. for the for the songs, and he translated all of them. Yeah, and um, if anyone wants to check it out, because I just bought it, uh, he released the whole album um, of him covering all the uh, songs that he does for the movie on a, on an album. It's so cool because it. I think that's how we can follow the tone mm-hmm. of the of the scene. Because nine times out of ten, Pele is... You can either hear him or he's in the scene. Right. Um, and that's how we can kind of tell the... I feel like the tone of that scene. Now, I would have preferred the entire movie be uniform that way. Mm-hmm. Um, because every once in a while, there is the actual, you know, original recording of David Bowie, right? Yeah, or hear, another person, right? Yeah, we hear Life on Mars after the, the first festival yeah then we hear queen bitch at the end mm-hmm. um and you know i, I don't know I, I i would have preferred all pele yeah. right um but i don't know it's not my movie so i don't know damn you gotta call up west mick hey remember that movie you made about 16 years ago yeah redo it yeah we just redo the music because <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know, because I, I just felt like if, if it would have been all been Pele doing the... Which yeah. I think that I would have liked that a little bit more than yeah. switching it up, right? Because yeah, I, I, I felt like there was no reason for it to have been switched up, right? I feel like the only reason why he did it was because he knew probably certain American audiences possible. wouldn't like it. right? So if I just add in at least two of the original mm-hmm. people will be satisfied and I think the other thing about it like you were saying is the songs are all completely rhyme based mm-hmm. you can tell what songs he's singing without right. understanding especially the the two that we picked for this episode because they're so, such iconic songs and there's such recognizable melodies that I knew it immediately as soon as he started singing it I was like mm-hmm. oh hey that's Bowie right yeah, and uh, same goes for Rebel Rebel, which is another one of my favorite songs. So I was like, oh. So I did like that it was a full Bowie theme. I do really like David Bowie. Um, and and what I love to we share a birthday. Sorry, no. Is Pele has very little speaking lines. Mm-hmm. He, he does speak in certain scenes, but I felt like 
Wes was like, I don't need him to speak for people to right. really like this character. And I did. I did really like yeah, Pe- Pele the is, character a lot. He's one of the more uh, wholesome crew members. Yeah. Because everyone, to be honest, all of our heroes, quote unquote, they're all pieces of shit. <laughs> everyone on Steve's crew is just the worst. I did think it was funny that these, the script supervisor uh, was always topless. Yeah. And, and it seemed to be... <laughs> At, it, it, at first, I was like, are they making her do that? That's terrible, right? But it, it, after a while, I was like, I think it's her choice, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and Wes, and and that's and that's a big thing with Wes, is he, majority of his movies are rated R. Mm-hmm. He's only got two that are not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox is PG, which in my opinion should have been at least thir- PG-13. Uh, and then Isle of Dogs is PG-13. Um but all but all the other ones are rated R, um, and he never does anything to like to excess. You know, like the violence isn't over the top. No, and even that, even the topless stuff wasn't gratuitous. Exactly. I, I just thought that it was. It was just strange. It was just strange. Exactly. It was. It was sort of surreal because you're like, wait, why isn't she wearing a shirt? And she does it. I think the only two times we don't see her do it is when they're at the sea lab. Yeah. And when she's telling them that they're on, you know, unsafe waters, right? Yeah. She's, and then when she leaves, right? She's like, nope. I think it's only when she's angry. <laughs> she's she's wearing a shirt, right? Yeah. Yeah, and that that is something that uh, Wes does. So, not to spoil it, but in, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, Ray Fiennes' character, Mr. Gustav. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I was getting. Uh, Esteban and oh, Gustav. Oh, gotcha. Confused. Okay, that makes sense. Um, is uh, a sugar daddy? No, not a sugar daddy. He's a yes for Tilda Swinton, right? Well, he he, he likes gilfs, right? Um, because he can get their inheritance. Amazing. <laughs> uh, He's a black as, as he states it in the movie to zero, um, um, that like age is like cuts of steak. And that the older the fillet is, the better it is. I don't know. It's a great analogy. Ray Fiennes uh, is gold. Now, I do have that one on my shelf as well. You definitely I, should watch I that one next. I have three Wes Anderson movies on my shelf. Again, I had never seen any of them until today. Um, one of them was Life Aquatic uh, that I got at a on Criterion, by the way, at a pawn shop for $2. And then... I was like, and then I saw like Grand Budapest was in a five dollar bin. I was like, ah, oh, whatever. People seem to really like this one. I'll put it on my shelf. We'll see if I ever watch it. And then Fantastic Mr. Fox, I was recommended. Um, so the I'm gonna use the the this little part right here. Um, so both those films are full blown comedies. <laughs> um, Grand Budapest uh, won a couple of Oscars. Yes, uh, I think that was around the time because. He had done Moonrise Kingdom, and mm-hmm. that one was a gigantic critical success, right? Yes. And yeah, because well, I should also mention that uh, Life Aquatic was not. Yes, I, and I was going to say, because um, Roger Ebert gave this one two and a half, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not good. Um, yeah, which is crazy, because I love it. I think it's... He gave Devil's Rejects more, right? Yeah. Um, and so I was kind of like, oh, that's odd, because I thought everyone loved, you know, everyone's always sucking Wes Anderson off all the time, right? <laughs> And uh, another, I guess it's another reason why I kind of don't, I, I kind of have this sort of cold shoulder about it because I'm just like, I mean, do they just like him just to like him? You know what I mean? What's yeah? So so one, it's what it seems like. 
It won one, two, three, four Academy Awards. Grand put a best. Uh, best original score. Best production design, best costume design, and best hairstyle, makeup and hairstyling. Okay. Honestly, the four the big things ones. that set that film apart. And I, think, I agree. I would say the set design for sure. Right. Yeah. So, so Grand Budapest is considered a comedy drama. Yeah, I consider it just a comedy. A comedy, comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because there's never a dramatic part in the film. Now I have friends that have seen it that are like, Jeremy, you would like this one. And I was like, don't tell me what to do. And so, <laughs> um, well, again, because at the, again, at this time, you know, people are just sucking him off. That is what it seems like to me. Yeah. They're coming all over his tits. Um, and it seems like for no reason, just because his name's on it. Right. And, and so I kind of have this, this sort of mental block when it comes to Wes Anderson, but, because I feel like, he is, he is, you know, being given all these accolades by name only, right? Yeah. Um, um, now that I know this one wasn't doing my research for this podcast, I was like, okay, well, that's that gives me a little bit of hope, maybe. Um, <laughs> but again, I didn't really like this one, so there's, um, you know, yeah, yeah. So Grand Budapest, um, God, it's so funny. And he does something so cool in it, and I want him to, and I think he's going to use it again for the French Dispatch. This, um, this style. So the film is told. Are we talking aspect ratios? Yes. Because he uses what three? It's told in four. Okay. Different aspect ratios. I see that that to I like. differentiate the timeline. Right, and that I like because I do I do like clever ways to. Split up timelines. Oh, and that brings up um, something that I was wondering about on this one is the time period seems ambiguous. That's a big thing with him is he 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 keeps it. It's either he, he mixes modern and old together because and you don't know what, right because at first I was like okay it's obviously old because of the the style that their movie footage is shown in right. Mm-hmm. And but when he goes and has that fist fight, that altercation, the dude has this a disposable, disposable camera. camera. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, then maybe it isn't, and I don't understand what's going on. Uh, right? Royal Tenenbaums is worse. Is it? I say worse in a good way. Mm-hmm. It's you really don't know when it's taking place. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, Royal Tenenbaums is a little easier because it's shot in New York, mm-hmm. so it's very easy to tell that we are roughly in some form of modern time. I see. But, um, but yeah, but with Grand Budapest, when he tells the present, it's in standard widescreen. Mm-hmm. When he tells... Because the, the film starts... Welcome back to the Grand Budapest podcast. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to... Then when we have narration from the author, the character of the author, that's, all, that's his, just his name... It's still in widescreen, but it's a little bit more confined. Mm-hmm. And then when we have uh, Jude Law as the young author taking over the narration, oh Jesus Christ! It's in a little bit more tighter wi- uh, widescreen. And then when he meets with F. Murray Abraham, who is the older version of Zero, I do like F. Murray Abraham. Okay, go ahead. It goes right into square. Gotcha. And that's where it stays the entire movie. Okay. Uh, I mean. We break out of that every once in a while. Every once in a while, but it stays in square the gotcha. entire film. Okay. Um, and I love it. I when me and Ashley first watched Grand Budapest, 
uh, we were like, uh, something wrong with the TV? Or no, I do, I do enjoy when filmmakers nowadays, nowadays, Jesus Christ, hold on, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, will will play with aspect ratio, right? Mm. Because we're, you know, from the history of film, you didn't get to do that, right? Especially very early on. Oh yeah. And with the invention of sound, you get a very tight square. Because the soundtrack is so big, um, but now that we have gone through these stages of aspect ratio and what you're able to do and what you're able to see on screen, now filmmakers can play with that, right? And can yeah. use different wands at different times, which I like. Yeah, and so then um, with Fantastic Mr. Fox, I, I personally feel like you would like that one as well that's because what people tell me. because and that's why it's on my shelf. He. I mean, yes, he wrote the script, but he didn't come up with the idea. It's based on a book by Raoul Dahl. Mm, Um, I know him. He created the most notorious villain in all of cinema history. Oh, you mean... Grandpa Joe. Grandpa Joe? Grandpa Joe, yeah. (laughs) Grandpa (laughs) Joe Biden his time? And it's... Oh, Jesus, I hate Grandpa Joe so much. Um, If you guys want to have a good laugh, um, (laughs) join the I Hate Grandpa Joe from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory Facebook group. It's amazing. Now, you need to look for Jeremy's name because I actually did kind of do a little research. There's like a ton of those. Yeah. So you got to look for the one that Jeremy likes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, Which it should say who liked it. If you're already friends with me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that one's great. Um, Anyway. But anyway, yeah. Um, So fantastic. But the reason, but the thing that makes Fantastic Mr. Fox so good is that it does have Wes Anderson's geometric geometric shots gotcha. his humor um, and fucking George Clooney kills it the I entire do, movie I do like George Clooney a lot like it's just so weird to hear his very deep voice coming out of a fox which you know is only like that big but on screen he looks right, you know humans on. Um, but that also has other Actors that Wes has worked with. Owen Wilson makes an appearance. Bill Murray makes an appearance. Mm-hmm. I say an appearance. Um, Jason Schwartzman, uh, Michael Gabin. Um, I do appreciate a good Wes Anderson parody, by the way. Uh, SNL's done oh, one yeah. that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. Well, which, so I'm kind of glad you brought that up because that is, yeah, it, it makes fun of primarily the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Because Alec Baldwin also narrates. The Royal Tenenbaums. I knew that. Um, and Edward Norton has also... Been in a couple? He, he he was in Grand Budapest, and he's one of the main dogs in Isle of Dogs. Oh, and he was in Moonrise Kingdom. Yes. That I knew. He was. He was that, in Moonrise Kingdom. I knew that. And Moon, so, oh, that's another one that's PG-13. Sorry. Moonrise Kingdom? Because I feel like if you would have made it rated R, people would have lost their fucking minds. Because... Because those kids bang? Almost. Right on. They're okay. <laughs> There's a scene when the kids, when they finally get away, they they make it to. I very briefly talked to Alex about this last night when we were at his house. Um, before it, you got there, it's a great movie. Me and Ashley love it, but as soon as it gets here, we're just like, ugh. So the kids, you know, they run away from home. They make it to the island, the shoreline that they've been trying to get to, and they. They're like, well, now we're free. We can do whatever we want. And so they start having, like, a dance party because the, the girl brought a recorder that does look straight out of 1970. 
So another one that's ambiguous with the time period, but then there's other modern things about it. Anyway, mm-hmm. and they play a song, and so the, both of these kids, I think, are like 12. Ooh, yikes. <laughs> and so they're dancing, having a good time. The little boy is, you know, in his whitey tidies and just wearing his scout uniform, unbuttoned. Mm-hmm. Um, the girl... I think is in her bra and panties. Yikes. And they're dancing, having a good time. Well, then they go in for a kiss. And I will always remember this I line. I, I, I don't think I'd like this movie at all. <laughs> and all she says, the girl goes, I can feel it. Oof. Yikes. Ah! <laughs> I mean, it, it, listen, it's not that, you know, I... I <laughs> Disapprove of it. I mean, that's fine. I mean, that's fine because you know Stephen King has done that on print and things like that. They wouldn't be able to show it, obviously. If yeah. you've ever read it, um, there's anyway. And so that doesn't bother me. I think I just I just don't know if I. Moon, so Moonrise Kingdom. I don't think I'd like that movie at all. Moonrise Kingdom is more of a family drama. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, but fine. then, uh, but then we got Bruce Willie in there. Yes, I knew that. Bill Bill Murray comes back. Jason Schwartzman, Francis McDowell. I really like Francis McDowell. Um, Tilda Swinton shows. I think that's her the first time she was in a Wes Anderson film. Uh, yeah, Edward Norton's in it. But, um, yeah. Uh, I don't remember the point of this. I just love Wes Anderson. I, um, I, I, I said it to you before we started recording, and I'll say it again now, is... Much like boxed water uh, <laughs> that you that you gave me to drink for this podcast, uh, yeah. which is very fitting because I think this is the most hipster bullshit in the world, and so is Wes Anderson. Yeah, but it's I think, good water, right? I th- it's fine. It's water. Um, I think Wes Anderson is is the boxed water of film directors. <laughs> I think it's very it's very hipsterish, which is fine. I, you know, again, uh, a lot of the stuff I like, but majority of the stuff I don't. And it's just because it doesn't click with me, right? I can see the appeal. I can see the value. I can see why people like it. I just don't. Oh, that's... I remembered why. I was like, why? how do we get on Moonrise Kingdom? Fantastic Mr. Fox. I, both of those... The, both those movies that you own, I think you would genuinely like. Um, the only the only movie of his that I really need to see is the Darjeeling Unlimited. Mm-hmm. That's the only film I haven't seen of his. And that one excites me the most, and I don't know why, when that one was made in 2007, mm-hmm. because it's Jason Schwartzman, Adrian Brody, and Owen Wilson. I'm a big fan of Adrian Brody. Um, his character in Grand Budapest is fucking hilarious. He calls um, Ray Fiennes' character... I'm not going to use the term, but it it sounds like fig. Oh, okay, gotcha. Okay, so... Just not with an I. So it's um, the the other F word. Yes. Gotcha. And, and, then, and then he calls him... Uh, then he says something else to him. Is that the one that he looks a lot like Salvador Dali in that Yes. Because he has played Salvador Dali before <laughs> in uh, another... Um, another director's films, which I have a very hard time with, which is Woody Allen. He was uh, in... Uh, Midnight in Paris. Oh yeah. Uh, also with Owen Wilson. Um, but uh, but then um, you know then Adrian Brody calls him out for having sex with old women, and he's like, I thought I was supposed to be a, right. a fucking, and he's like, You are, but you're bisexual. 
And it's it just Adrian Brody's character is so good in Grand Budapest, and he has one of my favorite um, curses in the whole film because the whole movie centers around this one thing. I'm not going to tell you because I think you should watch it. Okay. Well, so it centers around this one thing. And when Adrian notices it's missing, he sees and he get, very dryly just goes, holy fuck. And exactly like that. And it's so funny. <sighs> I'm really glad you don't like Woody Allen. That's the only thing I'm thinking about right now because I... um, that would be another one that I would have a lot of trouble with. Is Because I, I think Woody Everyone Allen... Everyone says Woody Allen is so good. I know. And again, it's the same thing I have with Wes Anderson is everyone's coming all over uh, Woody Allen's tits also. Right? And... <laughs> And honestly, I think it for me. I I personally don't have a problem with him marrying his stepdaughter, which um, people seem to be up in arms with, and which it's gross. But again, who cares? Yeah, um, they're not blood related. No, and again, yeah. it's it, again, it's very gross. I get that, yeah. but I don't care. Right? That's yeah. not why I don't like his films. I don't like his films because number one, my parents have brainwashed me not to <laughs> because they they also do not like Woody Allen at all. Um, but again, I can overcome that because I like Andy Kaufman and my parents hate Andy Kaufman, right? Um, Andy Kaufman. But I would love to talk about Man on the Moon. We can One do day. that later. Uh, but I'm, all I can think of right now is thank God you also don't really like Woody Allen movies. There's only one movie of his. Well, there, there's two. There's two movies of his I really genuinely want to see. There's one of them, Annie Hall. Oh, no. Really? No, I that mean... That would be the one I would want to see. I... And I've actually seen a great majority of any all, but... I... I mean, everyone has said that you should watch Annie Hall. That mm-hmm. Like, that I should watch Annie Hall, but I'm like, mm, maybe not. Uh, but the two I really want to see, and he almost made them back-to-back, uh, and one in 2016 and the one in 2017, uh, Cafe Society mm-hmm. with Jesse Eisenberg and uh, Kristen Stewart, mm-hmm. and then Wonder Wheel... Okay. With, uh, uh, oh, fuck, um, Kate Blanchett, oh no, Kate Winslet, Juno Temple, mm-hmm. and Justin Timberlake. Yes, that, um, I've I've heard of both of those. Now it's this that's in an odd part of his career. Sorry, guys, we're talking about Woody Allen now. Um, is that in that part of his career, the latter half is sort of, and it might have been the same in the seventies, in the eighties also, but it's almost like. He comes out with these movies really quick. It's he's like the James Patterson of coming out with movies, right? Yeah. Because they're, they're there's a whole bunch of them. Yeah. Here, let me see. So now the one I have seen is Midnight in Paris because I had to watch it for one of my classes in college for art appreciation. Um, what did you think of that? It was fine. I didn't hate it like I thought I would. I think mainly because I. And even my dad said, if you're gonna, if you have to watch a Woody Allen movie, I caught it on cable. It's not bad. And I was like, oh, okay. So, <laughs> again, brainwashed by my parents. I hate Woody Allen, but that one wasn't bad. I didn't hate it. I didn't love everything about it, but. Um, well, you know, I see what you're saying. So, like in '70, he goes, he did, in the span of three years, three uh, movie a year. Yeah, he did a movie a year, which is hard. Yeah, bananas. Everything you've always wanted to know about sex. Sleeper. And then there was a two-year jump, and then another two-year jump, and then in, with Annie Hall, he went Annie Hall, 77, interior, 79, 8, and Who's then Manhattan. Sleeper? Sleeper was 73. Okay. 
Uh, Interior 78, Manhattan 79. That would be another one I would want to see. Is, I would see Manhattan and Sleeper, and that's it. Uh, Stardust Memories 980, and then another two-year jump. Now, I do think that it is, it's it's fitting we're talking about Woody Allen with Wes Anderson because I consider them both to be cut from the same cloth, not in banging your stepdaughter, but in... <laughs> yeah, I don't even think Wes is married. Uh, in cranking out these movies, right? Because he's, he's done quite a few. Oh, right? Wes is married. Uh, Wes Anderson's done quite a few movies, and they seem to have this, this height of critical acclaim, but... Not so much with regular folks, right? Yeah, you know, it would be. I would say Wes Anderson is the the A twenty four of directors. You know, A twenty four gets unreal critical acclaim. I like A twenty four, but I like A twenty four. Yeah, yeah, but that, I mean, but no, but, I you, you, but you get the point. I'm saying, you know, because as we mentioned when we did um, Hereditary. The A24 films get unreal critical acclaim, but as you put it, regular people don't really like them. No, yeah. And I think it's it's because of the stigma with film now, is that people expect it to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying that... I'm not... not, What I'm about to say, I'm not trying to say that they are a part of the problem, because I love these movies. But, you know, it's, it's, it's like the Marvel issue. Is you know yes, I loved every single Marvel movie that has come out, but as Martin Scorsese, Ooh, I not, and that's why we're different. <laughs> as Martin Scorsese, I will agree to him. States is that you know he's worried that this is what people think movies are. Right now, and I will say to Wes Anderson's credit, I do like the breaking of the mold. This is not a cookie cutter movie. This is very unique. Mm-hmm. And it is clever, and it's just not for me. I, I do want to say he's good at that. And he does yeah. his own unique style, and he follows that style. He doesn't he doesn't break away. He, he does what he wants, and it's different. I like that. I'm going to be honest. I wasn't expecting you to word it like that. I yeah. was expecting you to... Come in heated. No, I see his value. I, that's I, that's know. why I bought you the box water because I wanted to just like like yeah, <laughs> like stoke the fire and no because I I usually I don't like to because I know how hard it is to make movies. I yeah. don't want to bash right. It's just not for me, especially a fellow Texan, a fellow Texan, yeah, from Houston, Houston. and he, he graduated from UT. Dog, Ooh, it's not the heat that gets us to humidity. Um, that's yeah. something old people say, like me. Yeah, um, I'm 85, by the way. Uh, apparently, he actually does make a. Uh, sorry, I'm just, I'm just reading. Apparently, he he has a a cameo in Fantastic Mr. Fox. Wes Anderson, he oh. voices a character. Um, but no, man, I would say like definitely. I mean, in your own time, I'm not gonna, you know, because I know I can't change you. Uh, Many have tried. Yeah, but you know, in your own time, watch Fantastic Mr. Fox and Grand Budapest. I think, I think Grand Budapest, you you probably would like more than this. Mm-hmm. I think you'll just genuinely like Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's what I've been told. I've been told because you know I've I've stated my opinions of Wes Anderson before mm-hmm. uh, to other people, and they said, you know what, start with Man- Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think you'd like it. Yeah, it's 
It's very good. And I ended up not doing that. I ended up starting with The Life Aquatic. Well, I mean, <laughs> so. it's not a bad, in my opinion, not a bad start. I love The Life Aquatic. But um, but then maybe if you see Fantastic Mr. Fox, it'll make you want to watch Isle of Dogs. Cause, oh, okay. <laughs> Dude, Isle of Dogs. I've seen some behind-the-scenes footage of some of the, stop, the, the time-lapse stop-motion mm-hmm. of The Isle of Dogs. And I like... I liked what I saw, and I liked the idea of them speaking Japanese mm-hmm. and no subtitles. There's a movie out there called The Tribe, which is a definite um, future, episode. future episode because it is all done in sign language, but there's no subtitles. Oh, shit. The entire thing. So you have to kind of figure out. Yes. Uh, by body language, by facial expression, by tone, and by scene. So... You do understand what's going on. It's not hard, but you do have to keep your papers on the screen. You can't you right. can't check your phone, right? Um, but I love it. It's called the Tribe, and it's it's not American Sign Language. It's a different. Oh, I forgot Russian Sign Language. Anyway, don't matter. Yeah, um, but the the last thing I'll add is like so with the Isle of Dogs. I also loved that all the humans speak Japanese, um, but apparently. I'm not trying to call anyone out here, but apparently uh, Japanese-American film reviewers Mm -hmm. um, apparently had a problem with that. Okay. Because me and Ashley's theory, because we read several reviews from Japanese-American film reviewers, um, and they were listing all of these minute problems that they had with it. And my theory is because since Wes beat them to the punch of saying the humans are speaking their Japanese language. Mm-hmm. There will be no subtitles. Is um, they couldn't find anything else to complain about. Is the the Japanese like correct and proper Japanese? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he hired Japanese actors who okay. have done English speaking roles, so they can understand the script. Mm-hmm. I gotcha. Uh, but they they spoke it in Japanese, and it's and I love it. That's interesting because there are no subtitles. Saying what they're saying. Who um, the? This is again another digression. I apologize, but um, that that jogged my memory to uh, John Carpenter's The Thing is a little fun, little Easter egg. Is they tell you in the very beginning, um, but you don't speak Norwegian, right? Uh. But the the Norwegian guy who's shooting the dog is pleading with them that that's not a dog, right? But John Carpenter's like they don't. Theory, I mean, in generally, his audiences don't speak Norwegian, yeah. so they're not going to understand, right? And I'm sure when it premiered in Norway, Norway, that they're like, oh, oh, run, right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, that just uh, that's just a little fun thing. So, yeah. all right. Um, so the, yeah, would so, you like to wrap up? Yeah. So the Life Aquatic, um, like I said, I loved it. You know, I actually. You know, I wasn't expecting you to be so kind of nice calm about it. <laughs> um, I'm but, not one to fly off the handle. Uh, but I mean, you know, you know, Bill Murray leads the movie. I knew you'd love that. And I do. I, I no matter what movies, and I do like Bill Murray a lot. And you know, I'm one of those people who you know don't really. I mean, I didn't like Scrooge really. Um, that's not a movie that I love, and I can see it on yourself over there. Yeah, um, Ashley but I loves love it. Bill Murray. Right, and yeah. so I'll give it a shot. Um, I'm, <laughs> I love Stripes, because Bill Murray's in it, right? Um, 
I don't know, man. I just think he's amazing. So, Did you know, sorry, sidebar, did you know that apparently when he and Harold Doremus did Groundhog Day together, mm-hmm. that actually ruined their friendship? Yes. For X plus years before he died and then Bill made amends? Right before he died. Yeah. Yeah, it was, that was in the Ghostbusters episode, I think, of the, uh, um, the movies that made us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that kind of broke my heart a little bit. I was like, oh. I know, right? That was about like they're like they're like the 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 comedy duo, and that movie ruined their friendship. Anyway, um, so Jeremy, you told me yesterday you already have ready mm-hmm. uh, what we're gonna do next week. Mm-hmm. Tell me this this okay. movie. So uh, next week. Um, I'm I'm racking my brain to think because I know we've mentioned it before, but we've obviously we've never had a you know an episode on it, of course. Yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to rack my brain to see if we've ever done one of these, and I don't think we have. So that's exciting uh, to me, anyway. Um, and I'll try to find you the cut that I want you to see. Okay. Um, because if not, I'll just let you borrow mine, and I'll find it somewhere else. Um, uh, next week we are doing Fritz Lang's 1927 masterpiece. Metropolis. Oh, uh, I'm actually very excited for this. Yeah. So uh, Metropolis is an immaculate film. It is a triumph of silent cinema and not the last one he'll do because uh, after that he did two more silent films until he did M in 31. Um, but it is, you can't believe what you're saying. Hopefully I'll have my TV by then so I can see it on a gigantic <laughs> television because that would just be amazing um it's remarkable so. yeah i metropolis has always interested me mm-hmm. when i took my composition and rhetoric remedial course my first year of college mm-hmm. I, I had to retake composition and rhetoric right even though when i took the remedial it had nothing to do with composition and rhetoric like we had one assignment about how Superman's an allegory for Jesus Christ, which huh. I never realized until then. I was what? like, holy okay. shit. That's fine. <laughs> but then we discussed Metropolis one, mm. yeah. one class, and he, the, the, my professor, I don't remember his name, showed us a clip, and I was just in love yeah. with how... It looks. The architecture of it, which you we've mentioned that Fritz Lang, Lang was an architect, and I was like, I have to see this movie. Yeah. So I'm actually I'm actually genuinely awesome. excited for this. I think to get you in sort of introduced to the world of silent films, mm-hmm. this would be the best way to do it uh, because it yes it is a silent film, the music's great, um, but it's so beautiful to look at that I don't think you'll mind. Yeah, I don't think it, I will because the title cards. I mean, yes, they get in the way, but when you're just like, oh. yeah, I remember watching the original. Uh, Phantom of the Opera with uh, Long Chaney. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and that's a sound of them. Loved that. And then every time the title card would pop up, I'm like, just go away. It is something that you, you'll you get the rhythm because once you see people talking, right, you can see their mouths move, you know in a few seconds that thing's going to pop up, right? Yeah. Because we need to know what they're saying, right? Not all the time, but it, uh, it's a lot. So yeah. you can usually tell by the framing. Anyway, Metropolis next week. Very exciting. All right. Well, uh, everyone, definitely uh, look out for that next week.
grande controle da Mejotão Grande controle da Mejotão Fique certo quanto à posição do sol Grande controle da Mejotão Protejo seus olhos contra o sal Passa trilhas